That's Mark 8 verses 1 to 10. So we're continuing in our series in Mark's Gospel. Uh, and we will listen together to God's Word now from those first 10 verses. So uh, let me read for us. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Uh, this is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, this passage really is um, its interesting. It's interesting uh, because, uh, well, we've heard last week that Jesus has gone to great lengths to make clear who he is and what he came to do. You remember the deaf mute man? He would stick his fingers into his ears to show him, I'm going to open your ears. He touched his tongue with his saliva and said, I'm going to heal you so that you're able to speak. So that there's no question about... What Jesus came to do, that was to liberate this man from those diseases. And there's no question about who Jesus is. He is the one that is doing it. He is the healer. Uh, and he is the one that's able to, to deal with our sin. And immediately after Jesus did this, something interesting happened. I didn't pay a lot of attention to it last time. But there's a bit of a doxology, a, a song of praise that all of a sudden erupts from this crowd. After they've brought this deaf mute man to Jesus. Uh, they... They, they see Jesus heal this man, and then once Jesus has healed this man, they essentially quote a portion out of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, where they say, look, he has done all things well. Has he done all things well? He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So the crowd gets who Jesus is, and they worship Jesus. But, but there's a group of people that we've come to know a little bit better over the eight chapters that we've been in Mark, and this is, this is, it's the disciples. We've not heard them confess their faith in this way. We've not heard them sing a doxology of praise to Jesus in the way that these people have done. In fact, we often see them, like we do once again today, as questioning whether or not Jesus is even able to heal people or to feed people. It's almost funny, I mean, that... Not long ago, Jesus, on the western side of the Lake of Gennesaret, or the Lake of Galilee, it's got two names, amongst a bunch of Jewish people, Jesus there fed 5,000 people in front of their very eyes. And again, they asked Jesus, so, so what should we do? These people need to eat. Where, shall we send them home? And Jesus says, go and see what you've got. Uh, and, and really, they come back to say, well, we've got five loaves and two fishes. And Jesus wants to say to them, you've not counted right. You've got five loaves, two fishes. And the Lord of the universe. I'm here amongst you. Don't you see who I am? And you think, have they forgotten this? Because it's the exact same scene that takes place again. They're again in a desolate place in a desert. There's again a crowd of people. This time just a thousand less. In fact, Jesus should be able to do this more easily than the previous time. 
And, and they say, oh, no, no, Who, what should we do? How should we feed these people? My goodness. Have they forgotten that Jesus did that previously? So that the disciples of all the people, the crowds get it. They get who Jesus is and what he came to do. But the disciples, well, they seem to be a bit, a bit slow on the uptake. Um, they, they seem to be forgetful or they're just simply unbelieving in their hearts. So my... My, my big push, if I had to come up with one point today for the whole thing, it would be the relentlessness of Jesus' pursuit of thick and slow disciples. The relentlessness, the doggedness, the single-mindedness of Jesus to just go after thick and slow people so that they would trust and believe in him. And Mark, none of that's lost on Mark. Now, Mark is very clever in the way that he writes this gospel. I, I was fascinated when I saw this in a commentary I've been reading where he says the first feeding of the multitude happened in chapter 6, verse 31. There's a feeding of the multitude. And now you're in chapter 8, verse 1 to 10, we get another feeding of the multitude. Okay, that's interesting. There's two of these. And then this commentator said, but hang on. If we go to just after the feeding of the multitude the first time, then we find that Jesus crosses the sea and he lands somewhere else. And, and we'll see after this chapter, after this piece that we just read, again, Jesus crosses the sea and he lands somewhere. And then in chapter 7, after he crossed previously, he had a conflict with the Pharisees. And we'll see, again, he'll have a conflict with the Pharisees in chapter 8. And then another mirror, there's going to be a conversation about bread in a little bit in chapter 8, verses 14 to 21. Well, there was a conversation about bread in chapter 7, 24 to, to 30. It's a mirror. It's, it's like it's a cycle of events, a feeding of the multitude, a going and crossing with a, with a little boat, a, 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 a conflict with the Pharisees, a conversation about bread. It just happens on both sides. And then there's a healing. The last time we got to the end of the first cycle, Jesus healed the, the deaf and mute man. And we'll again get to a healing in chapter 8, verses 22 to 26. He heals someone again. And then both of these cycles end with a confession of faith. And that's the point. Jesus drove the people in chapter 6 all the way down to chapter 7 to a confession of faith when they said he did all things well. He even heals the deaf and the mute. And he's doing the exact same thing now in the second cycle, following the exact protocol to end with a confession of faith. And that confession of faith, I'm sure you've heard this confession of faith before. It's Peter that Jesus asks him, so who do the people say I am? John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. But who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged him not to tell anyone about it. So Jesus does all these miracles to lead first the crowds to say Jesus is the Christ. And now we're sort of midway through a second cycle of Jesus leading the disciples to say that Jesus is the Christ. But here's what you've got to notice. Jesus is relentless. He doesn't give up. He doesn't go, oh my goodness, these guys are. Okay, let's leave it. Let's just, I'll go somewhere. I'll do something else. He just keeps going with them, and we need to see that he's doing that with us this morning. Here we are again, another Lord's Day. Every seven days, we meet like we do. Here we are again with the Bible, a sermon, every seven days, 52 times a year. God comes to us from his word, revealing himself, who he is and what he came to do, again to us. And in a moment, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper, where it's a wordless sermon, where God is again saying to you, this is who I am and this is what I came to do. He's relentless in his pursuit of thick and slow disciples. He's relentless in his pursuit of us. He's not going to give up. He is not irresolute. 
He's not intermittent. He's resolved to pursue us. He's not short-lived. He's persistent. And so I hope that today you once again respond with a fresh confession of faith in this Lord Jesus. Fresh confession of faith as you look at what he's done in the scripture. If you're a non-believer, I pray that you will see this relentless God and you'll just give up now. Because uh, he's not going to stop. He's just going to keep on pursuing you. Um, yeah. You might as well just, just submit and enjoy uh, a life of fellowship with this father who's not going to give up on pursuing you. So my first point is going to be this. God knows how vulnerable we are. He knows how vulnerable we are. And you can look with me at verses eight, uh, chapter 8, verses 1 to 2. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way and some of them have come from far away. Jesus knows about their vulnerability. He just knows that they're hungry. He's it's not escaped his notice that for the last three days they've been hanging on his lips as he was preaching, but they've not eaten. And now they've got to travel home and they might faint on the way. He's aware of their vulnerabilities. And, uh, and Jesus has compassion on them. Now, let's contrast two things quickly. The previous feeding of the 5,000, Jesus had the same response, if you can remember, well, I wrote it down here at Mark 6, verse 34. When he went to shore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. Can you remember why he had compassion on them? For they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. He was aware of their vulnerability and he realized their vulnerability is a teaching vulnerability, a, a soulish vulnerability, a spiritual vulnerability. And he had compassion on them for this. So, so we could say, well, Jesus understood that we are spiritual beings. We've got a spiritual need, a spiritual vulnerability. And he came to teach them in that way. But now we see that Jesus also knows that we are physical human beings, that we've got a physical vulnerability. Uh, and he realizes that they're hungry. Uh, and he's about to do something about, about that. And so right here, there's an application for us. Jesus, God knows our vulnerabilities. He knows our vulnerabilities spiritually, and he knows our vulnerabilities physically. And he's fully intent on doing something about it. In fact, he has done something about it. And this is, yeah, this is important. If we just go to the spiritual side for a moment, you see, Jesus knows that we're always vulnerable spiritually, looking for shepherds, looking for people that can show us the way, that can lead us through life. Uh, and, uh, and, well, you, you never feel at home with the shepherd that you have that's leading you until it's Jesus that's leading you. Um, some of us give up halfway and say, well, I've not found Jesus, the soulmate that can really bring me home. So I'll settle for a second best, another human being. And when they disappoint me, I'll find another one that's a bit better in this way or in that way. And then this person will become my shepherd, the one leading me, leading me, leading me. And then eventually, I guess, you get a bit skeptical and cynical. And you just give up on finding a shepherd in someone else. You just say, I'm going to be my own shepherd. From now on, I do my own stunts. I will just do my own thing. I'll follow my own advice. There is no God. There are no good people out there. It's a doggy dog world, and I will fight my own corner. Jesus knows about that vulnerability that you have, that spiritual vulnerability. And you know it as well. You know you don't believe your own propaganda. You know you don't believe it when you look yourself in the mirror and say, you're beautiful, you're strong, you're wise, you've got this, you can do this. I don't believe that. 
I've lived long enough with me to know that I will disappoint myself again. And Jesus knows about this vulnerability. And today's sermon isn't about that one, but he knows about that. The second vulnerability that he's focusing on, he's focusing on the physical vulnerability. And this morning, we don't need any reminder of our physical vulnerability, do we? This is why we're freezing in here. The windows has to be open, so there's fresh air. This is why it's like this for us. It's, 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 we're vulnerable. The whole world is vulnerable. It's, it's everywhere. Everyone knows that we're vulnerable. And the message of Jesus is, is, I know about your vulnerability. And this is not the only thing that's true of you. Your vulnerability, your hunger, your susceptibility to illness is, is not all that's true about you. This is who I am and this is what I came to do. He, he wants to show you who he is and what he came to do. And he wants to do it not in spite of our vulnerability. He wants to do it through our vulnerability. He wants to grab hold of our vulnerability and and use that to say, look at me, look at who I am and what I came to do. And then put your faith, your trust in me. And perhaps at this point, we need to say that we are not Gnostics as a church, as Christians. We, we do not divide the body between the spirit and the body. We don't, we don't view the Christian life as uh, the, the spiritually superior. And that's what we pursue above all. And the body, well, that's inferior, that will pass away, it's not worth much. Well... Jesus always bring these two together. He's treating the whole human being, both as spirit and as body. And his resurrection is in a new resurrected actual body. They could touch Jesus' body. We will receive new resurrected bodies. Jesus is interested and he cares for our bodies. The first sin that, that opened up the curse that was poured out on the world was a bodily, fleshly sin. It, it was, incidentally, about eating once again. They did not follow God's instruction about eating, not eating the fruit of the tree, knowledge of good and evil. But then when Jesus comes to save them, right in the middle again, there's a very fleshly festival, a feast, the Passover meal, where he, he takes the spiritual realities and he makes, it, he makes it physical for them as there's the Passover lamb that they've slaughtered and that they eat with the, uh, unleavened bread. They celebrate this Passover. Jesus is deeply interested, not just in the spirit, but in the body. When our Savior comes, he does not come as a disembodied soul that arrives. There's some myths and some heresies that were floating around at the time. I think Marcion was one of them that said that Jesus was just, he was just a soul. He wasn't actually in the flesh. He was just a very visible soul that was walking around us. God is only interested in the soul because you see the Greeks have separated the body and the soul. People seem to think that this is what Christianity also wants to. No, he comes to redeem the body, the physical body, the physical realm. So Jesus comes, God, the second person of the Trinity, takes on human flesh. The word became flesh. That's what John 1 verse 14 says. God cares so much for our bodies, for the vulnerability of our physical bodies. He takes on a vulnerable physical body and he becomes one of us. A body like ours that is susceptible to uh, virus and uh, it's probably vi viri. What are you? <laughs> Viruses. Let's go with that one. <laughs> susceptible to diseases, susceptible to any other bad thing that can happen to our vulnerable, squishy, soft, bloody bodies. He, he, he becomes one of those. Uh, and then... You see, the way that Jesus redeems us is not by just standing and looking at the plight of humanity and he says a word or he says a prayer to deal with it or he just does something to sort of alleviate it. 
The way he deals with our sin is, as Romans 8 says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. God dealt with our sin in the flesh. Our faith is a bodily, fleshly faith. Our faith is a, is a physical faith. That's Barnaby just making his presence known. <laughs> Welcome, Barnaby. We're so glad. This is your first service with us. Um, so, Jesus makes his salvation physical by taking on, well, human flesh and then dying to, for our sin in the flesh. So God knows about our vulnerabilities. He cares about our vulnerabilities deeply enough to take on our vulnerabilities and kill them on the cross. As he dies, ultimate vulnerability comes down on him. And three days later, he's, he's risen again to appear to us as the eternal, undying, immortal Son of God, now in the flesh. Now, this divide between the spirit and the body, that, that thing is alive and kicking in our heads as we sit here this morning and we're tuning in online. You see, we, we, we know what Jesus said. Do you remember when Satan tempted Jesus in the desert? Jesus, 40 days, he's not, he's, he's fasted, he's hungry. And Satan comes to him and says, well, take these stones, just tell them to turn into bread and you'll be fine. You know, eat that and get, get rid of the physical discomfort by eating quickly. And Jesus says this very spiritual Response. He says, Deuteronomy 8, he quote these words, Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And you think, you see, the spirit is worth far more than the body. Jesus even said it himself. He, he lived like that. But the mistake that we make there is actually that we forget that the word Jesus quotes comes in a bigger context. And the context of Deuteronomy 8 that Jesus quotes where he says, Man shall not live from, from bread alone, but from every word that comes out of the Father's mouth. In Deuteronomy 8, God talks to his people and he says to them, Look, I want you to move into the promised land, to occupy, to take it, and you should trust me. Why? Because you saw in the desert when you were wandering for 40 years that I fed you with manna from heaven. I protected your clothes from wearing out and I protected your feet from swelling up. I looked after your bodies. So, so these two things are un inseparable, the, the, the spirit and the body. When Jesus says, you shall live from every word that the Father speaks, he's not saying, oh, it's just good enough. Well, if you're dying, you're hungry, you're sad, just read the Bible. That's all you need. Jesus says, no, the body and the soul, the body and the spirit comes together. And God cares for both. And in there, there's a bit of a challenge for us. Now, during lockdown, so many of us have, have moved away from the body, from, from celebrating our faith in the body. Uh, our, our faith, perhaps this was your experience as well, it feels like it's sort of moved to a television screen, you're just looking at a screen, your, your faith is, well it's spiritual, you can sit anywhere now and worship God, you can go away for the weekend and then whenever you just tune into the service, you can just meet wherever you are. Your life can basically carry on because, you know, it's spiritual. We just need to be somewhere where, you know, we can hear the the voice and we've got some wi-fi and then we can do it but there's something about church in the body that i want to encourage you our faith as a christian faith is a fleshy faith is a bodily faith 
It's a practical, physical faith in the, in the elements of the Lord's Supper. This is not the end, by the way. This is not the end. This is just a stepping stone to that which is truly in the flesh and in the spirit. And that is what will be in heaven. Renewed bodies without sin, disease, God's actual presence. We will see him face to face. But he does mean we get to the soul through the outside, through the body. I enjoy at the end of our services when we lift up our hands to sing the doxology. It often preaches to me as I look at you. We're worshiping God. This is not just faces we can only see there. But now we see the hands go up. The bodies are preaching to us that God is worthy of our praise in a public, visible way. In the mornings when I see Stefani just on, the knee, on her knees praying to God. It speaks to me as I see she's worshiping God in the body. When I see people looking after the poor and the needy and the vulnerable with actual blankets, with actual resources, with actual money, with actual food, it encourages my soul because it's, it's real, it's fleshy. God cares for our vulnerabilities. He cares for our bodies. Where you live, what you eat, what you wear, what's going on in your health, what's going on in your bank balance. We do not serve a disembodied saviour. No, we have a high priest who, know our, who knows our human vulnerabilities and stands ready, unable to meet them. It was unable to meet them. Ready and able to meet them. Yeah. Okay, so this was the first point. It's the longest one. The next two are very short. But this was my main point. This is really what I wanted to bring across. And you, you heard the gospel in there, that Jesus took on human flesh and he died on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin in the flesh. And he gives his Holy Spirit to us now to enable this flesh to live in newness of life, to live for him. Okay, my second point is this. God cares for every nation under the sun. There's not a people group. If God cares for your body, for your body, for my body, he doesn't just care for our bodies as individuals scattered all over the world. He cares for everybody around the globe, in every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's how expansive his care is. And, and where's the example of that one in this text? Previously, Jesus fed predominantly Jewish people with the 5,000. And afterwards, they picked up 12 baskets full of leftovers. You'll see in chapter 8, Jesus explains this. The disciples don't get it. They ask questions about bread. And Jesus says, didn't you count the baskets at the end? The first feeding, there were 12 baskets full. The second feeding, this feeding, there are seven baskets full. And then Jesus doesn't answer the question, but he waits for the disciples to put the two together. Now, this is where the commentaries light up. You know, the moment you get with a number, you know, what does this mean? You know, they all have different, different ideas. I, I think it's actually very plausible, the ideas. The first one is easy. The 12 is the 12 tribes of Israel. It's just, that's always the sign of the 12. The 12 refers to the 12 tribes of Israel. Later in the New Testament, the 12 apostles, it is, is this mirror image. And we see it throughout the Bible. God has his people Israel. He chooses Judah from which the... Son of God will be born, that will be a blessing to the entire Israel and through Israel to the entire world. The first feeding focused on the Jews. But now Jesus is on the eastern side of the Lake of Galilee. The crowd is a mix of Gentiles and Jews. There's 4,000 of them, they eat, and afterwards they pick up seven baskets full. Seven. Seven days of the week. It's the number of completion. It's, it's full. It's, there's nothing left out. One commentator, slightly more tenuous, he says, after the flood, Noah's flood, there's a table of nations. And if you count how many nations there are after the flood, there's 70. So they should have picked up 70 baskets full of crumbs there, but 
it's good enough if it's a tenth of 787. It's saying he went to all the nations. First, the tribe of Israel, and then secondly, to all the nations of the world. And, and that's exactly what we read earlier with the Syrophoenician women. Jesus, she says to Jesus, well, yeah, feed the children first, Israel, feed them first. But us Gentiles, Syrophoenician that she was, we're happy to eat the crumbs under the table. And, and Jesus' point here is that he cares about the bodies and souls, not just of Jews, but of Gentiles. He cares for everybody. And let me drive that point home before you forget it. Isaiah 25 is a prophecy about this. You might think that Judeo-Christianity uh, is an un, uh, undivorceable marriage between those two. But, but it started with the Jews. Christianity includes everybody. And how do we know it? Well, it goes right there in the Jewish scriptures, in the Jewish prophets, in Isaiah 25. And this is a promise God makes. He says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. You heard that? The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, all peoples, a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. You see, all nations are under the curse. And the promise of Isaiah 25 is that he will come to liberate all nations, all people. He will take away the veil that's over all people, not just the veil that's over the Jews. The veil that's over all all people. And he would do it with a rich feast on a mountain. Oh, that sounds like this feeding of the multitude. They're on a mountainside. He's feeding. It's not quite fish and bread. It's not quite rich marrow and wine and so on. But, but there is a connection there. He's feeding them. He's, 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 he's feeding all of them. So Jesus is clearly saying that he feeds not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. That was my second point. And let me drive the second point home. He cares for all people. And he does this in a very interesting way. The Lord's Supper is very similar to the meal that they have there. If you see what he does, he takes out the, the bread and he blesses God. He thanks it. And then they break it and separate it out. And then he takes the fish. He blesses it. He thanks it. And then they send it around. This Eucharist, this Lord's Supper that Jesus would later institute with the bread and the wine. Now the point of it is very clear that this meal is here for anyone that will take it. This meal is here for anyone that says, I'm hungry. I'm ready. Give me some of that. I, I am ready to say that I've ate everything there is to eat and nothing satisfied. I need to eat you. You are the shepherd of my soul and of my body and I've come to feast on you. And so as you come to this Lord's table today, bear that in mind. That it is a confession of your sin and of your need as you come to say, I'm hungry, I need this God, and I will eat and drink him through the bread and the wine. And my third point, my third point is seeing Jesus. Seeing Jesus. It's, it's incredible. Oh my goodness. I want to sit down for this because I, it's incredible if you start to think about it. Jesus, did you notice how long he's been with these disciples, these people? 
It says here, those days when a great crowd had gathered, they had nothing to eat. He called his disciples and said, I've compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Three days and have nothing to eat. What happens after the three days? Well, after the three days, they see Jesus take the bread and the fish and he multiplies it. And then immediately this passage tells us he does that and verse 8, and they ate and were satisfied and they took up the broken pieces, left seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. He sent them away. We've had this problem pr- earlier with the multitude, the first, the first multiplication of the bread and the wine. They, they ate, they drank, and then immediately we find this abrupt statement, and Jesus sent them away. And he sent the disciples on the boats together. And all the commentators are a little bit worried. What, what's happened? Was there some sort of crisis that all of a sudden they had to be sent away? only explanation that I can find for this is that when they realized this is what Jesus has done, he's just fed them like the God of the Old Testament with manna from heaven. He's just fed them. The moment that they saw that, they realized it's God in the flesh and they wanted to hang on to him. Remember after Jesus' resurrection and he appears to the disciples and he has to say to Mary, you've got to let go of me because I have to send to the Father. Because people, when they realize this is God in the flesh, want to hang on to him. So he sends them away before the crowd. He's also physically limited. He can't fight them off. He can't fly up into the sky and disappear when they want to hang on to him. And so he sends them away. And these are people that knew about the scriptures because in Exodus 19, this is exactly what happens. Um, it's, uh, it's Moses in verse 10 and 11 that's told by God to do the following. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Today and tomorrow, that's one day, two days. And let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Seeing God in the flesh is what happened when Jesus multiplied the bread and the wine. And when people saw him, they did not know what to do with him. They should worship him. But his mission wasn't done. His mission wasn't just to tell them, I am God in the flesh. His mission was to come, God in the flesh, to the cross, Rome, uh, at Jerusalem. And they die for our sins in the flesh. His flesh had to escape the popularity contest. And he had to first go to Jerusalem in order to pay for our sins And so there is the challenge then for us. As we come to this Lord's table this morning, as we come to the Lord's presence this morning, he is relentless in pursuing you, thick and slow as we are, to reveal to you who he is and what he came to do. Once you recognize who he is and what he came to do, worship him. Worship him. Worship him in the spirit that he's given to us. Adore him as the God that has fulfilled all his promises of the Old Testament. And he took on our flesh to die in the body. Worship him with your body. Don't delay. Don't put this off. Don't, don't say, oh, that's very interesting. Oh, very convincing. Kruger made a good argument today. Kind of helpful. We're thinking about. And then you're back to a cat video on your phone. Take these words and say the right response to all of this is, I'll close my door. I'll go on my knees and my body and I'll worship Jesus as the king. I've seen him as he revealed himself through his word and through the Lord's Supper. I've seen him. Let me now come and worship him for who he is and what he came to do.
That, I think, is the challenge of this passage. This is where it's driving. It's driving towards that confession of faith that Peter makes at the end of this cycle. And he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you have come in the body. You have not sent an ethereal spirit to come and speak to us in strange voices. That you've not called us into a state of hypnotic ecstasy in order to disappear from the physical realm in which we find ourselves. Now you've come in the flesh. You know what it means to be hungry, to be thirsty. And you know what it means to have friends that's a bit thick and slow. You know that. And you just relentlessly pursued them as you're pursuing us this morning. To say, this is who I am. And this is what I came to do. Put your fresh trust in me. Uh, and see how I will bring you safely home until your body and your soul is completely satisfied. So we come to worship you that you've not left us on our own. You've not left us without revelation. You've not left us with a disembodied church that only meets in the sky, but but a church that meets in the flesh, in the body. We pray that you'll protect our meetings together. We pray that you'll protect our time together. We pray that you will... Give us rich feasting as we eat the bread and drink the wine. Father, we pray that you will, you, will, you will bring a solution to this problem of this virus so that we can meet publicly and boldly and, and, and joyfully once again. It feels like 10 years ago that we spoke about greeting each other with a holy kiss. That's something we can hardly think of now. But we, we then resolve to, to hug each other when we see each other, to, to make contact with one another, take each other by the hand and, 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 and remember that we're in the flesh and you came to redeem us in the flesh. Father, we look forward to that day when we cannot only meet in person but can once again hold each other and remember each other's physical bodies that you've come to redeem. So, Father, in the meantime, we have the bread and the wine, the sign and the symbol that we will now eat and drink that remember, remind us that you are a physical God that come to satisfy our desires fully and completely. Let us feast and eat in a, in a supernatural way now, in a way that's so spiritual it's physical. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.